7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mozambique's civil war ended more than a quarter century ago, but its once world-beating cashew industry is still recovering. How the government is trying to rebuild it is an object lesson in international development. And an unusual opera examines the life and letters of Mary Stopes. After a failed marriage, she became a birth control pioneer and an agony aunt to thousands. That century-old tale still resonates amid today's reproductive rights debates. But first... It's more than five years since the Islamic State's fighters burst into the Iraqi city of Mosul and took it over. The lightning strike prompted America to patch together an international coalition to fight against the extremists in Syria and Iraq, working closely with local partner forces on the ground. We're also providing urgent assistance to Iraqi government and Kurdish forces so they can more effectively wage the fight against ISIL. Now, President Donald Trump has declared victory against IS. The group's territory has shrunk to almost nothing, and its members are penned in squalid camps and jails. I've been president for almost two years, and we've really stepped it up, and we have won against ISIS. So Mr. Trump said at the weekend that he plans to withdraw American forces from part of Syria. He'll abandon some of those local partners led by ethnic Kurds. They now feel vulnerable to hostility from Turkey. So we, we have been uh, a stronger ally and defeated ISIS on the ground together with a coalition led by the American. Alan Simo is a representative of the political wing of those Kurdish-led forces. We feel by this decision allowing Turkey to invade northern Syria that uh, the coalition uh, led by American and Mr. Trump's announcement on Sunday uh, is uh, not honoring their promise and they don't keeping their promise. He fears Turkey will expel Kurds from the territory they now control. So on October 6th, Donald Trump announced that the 150 or so American troops in the area around Syria's border with Turkey would pull back and allow Turkey to to move into that area. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. The American troops were there to stand between Turkey and Syria's Kurds, who are important allies in the fight against Islamic State in Syria. But Turkey considers the Kurds to be terrorists. And Trump says now that the fight against Islamic State is over, there is no reason for America to stay in that area of Syria and to stand in the way of a Turkish invasion. And this has led to a lot of criticism of the president for abandoning his Kurdish allies. How much of a surprise is it that that Mr. Trump wants to do this now? It's a surprise in as much as Trump doesn't appear to have given the Kurds 
or even his own Pentagon much of a warning about the move. But it, it's in keeping with the president's desire to get America out of what he sees as these never-ending wars in the Middle East. Uh, and you remember just last December, Trump said he would pull all of American troops out of Syria. This hasn't yet happened. There are still about a thousand or so American troops in northeastern Syria. But it certainly reflects a desire on the part of the president to wash his hands of the region. So clearly the Kurds will not be happy with this outcome. But how has the decision gone down in America? Well, it's led to a very rare rebuke from both Democrats and and Republicans. I mean, you've seen Republican senators come out uh, pretty forcefully and criticize the president uh, for the move. Senators like Lindsey Graham, who who is almost always on the same page with the president, uh, is criticizing him for abandoning uh, America's Kurdish allies, uh, for giving Islamic State uh, a window uh, to come back in Syria. As the criticism uh, mounted throughout the day, uh, Donald Trump uh, eventually responded uh, by saying that uh, if in his uh, quote-unquote great and unmatched wisdom, Turkey did anything that he thought was off-limits, he would uh, obliterate the economy of Turkey. So the, the criticism does seem to have gotten to him. And so what do you think happens now if, if those American troops, that sort of that sort of tripwire across the border goes away, what happens next? Well, we're likely to see Turkey start moving into northern Syria in, in, in coming days or, or even hours. I mean, the question is how much of a fight will the Kurds put up without American backing? Uh, the Kurds alone are, are, are no match for the Turkish army. We've seen them face off before and it's ended rather badly for the Kurds. So, you know, what you could see happen is the Kurds having been abandoned by America, seeking alliances elsewhere. For example, they might turn south to Bashar al-Assad, Syria's dictator, um, and and relinquish some of their autonomy in exchange for protection from the regime. The reason that that the Kurds were allied with America was in the fight against Islamic State. How does does this move and and that evident betrayal figure into that? Even before this sort of latest development, the Pentagon uh, had warned that IS was regrouping in Syria. The, the fear now is that a Turkish invasion will throw northeast Syria, northern Syria, into chaos, exacerbate ethnic tensions there, not just between the Kurds and Turks, but also with the Arabs in the area, and really give the jihadists more of an opening. And it, it's also worth noting that the White House, in its statement on all this, said it was handing to the Turks responsibility for the tens of thousands of Islamic State fighters who are detained in northeast Syria uh, it's it's not clear yet how this will work. Many are held in under Kurdish guard in areas outside of the area that Turkey hopes to occupy in Syria. So it's not clear what will happen to them. And even if they were transferred to Turkish control, I mean, Turkey has a pretty poor track record of, of holding jihadists. It, it let many of the original Islamic State fighters cross its border into Syria in the first place. So Turkey's plan here is is essentially to to invade a piece of, of Syria to take over and and to to quash this group that it thinks are are terrorists. That that's correct. I mean, the the Kurds who are a minority in Syria have been trying to set up a statelet in in northern Syria, and and this is of great concern to the Turks. the The main Kurdish fighting force in Syria is associated with the Kurdistan Workers Party, which is a rebel group that has fought a long insurgency against the the Turkish state. So Turkey wants to ensure that the Kurds cannot plan or launch attacks from 
northern Syria. Um, and it also wants to create a space to send back some of the 4 million or so uh, Syrian refugees that are currently in Turkey. So does Mr. Mr. Trump's sudden decision to pull American troops out of this, this very sensitive area tell you anything more generally about how the administration views the region, what it would call its Middle East doctrine? I think Donald Trump really can't be bothered with a, a complicated place like the Middle East. Uh, we've seen America pull back in Syria. We've seen it take its eye off the ball in a place like Iraq, where there have been uh, big protests of late. Tensions between America and Iran have increased since Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal last year, but America hasn't really done much when Iran lashes out in the region in in response to that uh, provocation. And this retreat from the Middle East reflects a genuine frustration held by by many Americans and and past American presidents even um, with the country's interventions in the region and these so-called never-ending wars. Trump wonders rightly what America is getting out of all of this. But he doesn't really seem interested in answering that question because in in Syria alone, America does have an interest in keeping Islamic State at bay, in not allowing Russia or Iran to become the main source of influence in the region. So I I think regardless of whether you agree with Trump or with those who would keep America involved in the Middle East, the impetuous way the president goes about creating policy is likely to have damaging consequences. Thanks very much for your time, Roger. My pleasure. 8 hours a day, workers at a cashew factory in northern Mozambique scoop nuts from their oily shells. The country's industries have suffered since the start of a long civil war. That war ended in 1992, but its economic impacts are even now still playing out as Mozambique tries to revive an industry that it once dominated. During the era of Portuguese colonialism, cashew trees were planted all over the country. Liam Taylor writes about East Africa for The Economist. By the 1960s, Mozambique was producing half the world's raw cashew nuts and processing most of them domestically. The country has a good climate for growing cashews. One advantage it has is that its cashew season is at a different time to northern hemisphere countries. And of course, lots of these farmers have now inherited cashew trees from their grandparents, which are in their farms alongside the other crops they're growing and provide a potential source of income. So what happened to the cashew industry? First of all, there was a civil war during the course of which much of the industry collapsed. It was tentatively getting back on its feet when there was a knockout punch in the 1990s. The World Bank told the government to remove export controls and reduce export taxes on the export of processed kernels. The World Bank argued that the export tax was bad for farmers. It said it reduced the price that they receive and therefore that holds back production of nuts. That kind of dealt a hammer blow to the industry, which almost completely collapsed. And so what kind of state is the industry in today? So over the last 20 years, the industry has gone through quite an impressive revival. I visited some 
cashew nut factories in Mozambique. You, you go in there, there are long rows of workers. There's various different things they do, but it's kind of scooping nuts from shells, scraping the nuts clean with, with tiny knives. It's not exciting work. The pay is modest. It's hard for the workers to talk above the thumb of the machines. But the workers I spoke to were very, very glad to have a job because in that part of Mozambique, there are very few formal sector jobs. It's either work in the factory or stay back on the farm. So in, in total now, I think there's about 17,000 people employed in, in Mozambique's cashew processing factories, about 16 factories in, in total. And how is it that the, the industry was revived? So I spoke to uh, the owner of one of these cashew factories, and he told me that 99% of the reason the industry has revived was due to an export tax. Obviously, the World Bank had tried to get these export taxes removed in the 1990s, but in 2001, the government said, look, we're going to impose an export tax of 18 to 22% on the export of raw cashew nuts. But if you want to export processed cashew kernels, you can do that without any taxes. And what that means is there's less competition for these processors as they are trying to buy cashew nuts. So they get their nuts a little bit more cheaply, and that means they can overcome some of the, the wider disadvantages they have from, from operating in a place like Mozambique, where it's very different to some of the places like India or Vietnam, where the industry is a bit more developed. The industry argues that this is, this is an important first step for an industry which is still relatively young and which is trying to get back on its feet over the last couple of decades. But what about the effects on farmers that that, that export tax had that the, the, the World Bank was arguing about? So the effect on farmers is quite complicated. Obviously, as the likes of the World Bank argued in the past, this tax does reduce the price that they get for their nuts because there is less competition for their nuts. However, the size of that effect is, is probably not very large. The, the nature of the traders who are buying these nuts means that it's not an idealized free market. If you're a cashew farmer living in a remote part of Mozambique, you more or less sell your cashews to whoever turns up at your door. Anecdotally, I've heard there's lots of harassment involved in that process. Farmers might not know the, the market prices, so they might not even know what a good price to be pushing for is. There was a economic study done of the liberalization process in the 1990s and that found that farmers actually only ended up about $5.30 better off every year as a result of liberalization. So that suggests that even though the tax is bad for farmers, it's probably not especially bad. And, and in fact, some people argue that by having a strong processing industry in the country, that creates a guaranteed market, which is less volatile than the fluctuations of international demand. And that means that actually in the long run, although farmers might get a lower price, it will be a less volatile price, which gives them more reason to grow more nuts. And so on balance, you think that the, the formula that Mozambique has is working to now is, is the right one for, for everyone, for the farmers as well as the processors? There are no costless policies. In an ideal world, the farmers would get a bit better price for their crop and the industry would survive. But at the moment, that's just not possible. It depends whether you think it's it's worth removing the tax and potentially 17,000 jobs disappearing in order to make farmers slightly better off. My hunch is that at the moment for a country like Mozambique, which is trying to industrialize, trying to create jobs, that wouldn't be the right move. And so do you think that this dynamic kind of has wider lessons for, for other African countries that are trying to, to make the most of their, of their crops? I think it shows that, that governments do need to play a role in, in supporting industries. They can't just sit back 
and expect an industry to develop out of nothing. To what extent they should do so and whether the trade-offs are worth it is going to vary from case to case. One of the good things about cashews, for example, is that it's very labor intensive. It creates lots of jobs. Whereas, for example, the cocoa sector in, in West Africa is very capital intensive. And although it creates a few good jobs, it, it doesn't really create mass employment. And so I think it, it very much varies from case to case, from country to country, but the governments really need to be thinking seriously about this if they are going to create the jobs which Africa so desperately needs. Liam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Mary Stopes was a birth control pioneer. She opened the first birth control clinic in Britain in 1921 in London. Rachel Lloyd edits Prospero, The Economist's culture blog. She's just seen an unusual chamber opera in London. This new opera is about the thousands of people who wrote to her asking for advice, asking for help, asking for education. So this letter was written by a lady who was 37 years old. She'd had 14 children, many of whom had already died. And the doctor had told her if she had any more, she risks dying. Alex Mills is the composer of Dear Mary Stopes. And so she's writing in desperation for Mary Stopes' help about how to stop having children and how to gain access to some level of contraception. I felt that the text was a sort of almost sacred text. We were very privileged to gain access to these letters that were really, really rich in heartfelt emotion. And it felt like it would be a betrayal to make the music overly ornate or ostentatious. I think that opera as an art form that involves a text element, a musical element, a dramatic element, was the perfect medium to engage in such a deep and rich topic that ultimately has no right or wrong answers to it, but is rife for um, exploration in lots of different ways. Mary Stopes married the wonderfully named Reginald Ruggles Gates in 1911. After two years, she said that it had never been consummated, and she was very disappointed by this fact. So she decided to write a book, reflecting on what she'd learned from this sorry episode. And most of it was of the sexual education nature. She claimed to still be a virgin, but she wanted to give advice to young brides, to brides-to-be, to married couples, in fact, and to help avoid this depressing state of marital disharmony. So the book was a bestseller, was it? Married Love was a huge success. It sold 2,000 copies in its first fortnight. And at the end of the book, she invited people to write to her. She wanted to collect scientific evidence, so to speak. And they did. They wrote in their thousands. And so Mary Stokes herself is a character in this opera? She is, though she's not the main focus. Interestingly, she is given voice by a countertenor, which is a male part. Part of this is practical. There are male and female correspondents. And to distinguish her from the women who are writing to her, Alex Mills, the composer, wanted to have a different style of voice. 
part of it is also artistic. He wanted to encourage people to think about gender dynamics and gender norms, which was part of what was being discussed in Married Love. But the main focus of the opera is the women and men who wrote to her. And part of the reason for this is that Stopes' life itself is very controversial. She was eugenicist and talked about the need for birth control to weed out the feeble-minded in society. She believed that birth control would encourage the beautiful and intelligent of the race to prosper. So by focusing on the correspondence rather than Stopes herself, it allows the audience to focus on the people that she was helping rather than hurting with her views. And that topic of the people she was helping and and how, does that feel very contemporary or is this a kind of historical perspective? It does feel contemporary to me. And Alex, the composer, said that he was inspired by the discussion about reproductive rights going on in America. This year has been a very difficult time in the States for many reasons, in particular the wave of anti-abortion laws. And so the opera, based on material 100 years ago where women had no choice then, we're back to a similar position, changed but similar. And so there's still a need to be talking about these issues. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.